I'm going to dedicate the first few minutes of this class, even though I'm getting a late start, to doing an overall review of where we're holding, um, and then we will dive into where we left off. Right. So chapter 18, we start talking about a new approach to serving Hashem authentically, that rather than generating love and fear with one's um, intellectual comprehension of Hashem's greatness, rather one taps into an... an a, a hidden love, right? And it's called a hidden love. Remember, it's called a hidden love that every Jew has, every Jew inherits. And there are four questions surrounding this love. Number one, how can you inherit love? Two, what is the origin, what is the source of the love? Because it's not clearly not one's awareness of the greatness of Hashem. Three, what is the object of this love? What is the goal of this love? What is this love seeking out? Okay. And finally, how does it contain fear? Because authentic service of Hashem has to have both an element of love of Hashem and fear of Hashem. And we've answered three of those questions. We said that every Jew, because of the, the special service of the forefathers, inherits a godly soul. Meaning before the forefathers, a godly soul was something one earned and subsequently could lose. But now the godly soul is an inheritance. And because it's inherited, you don't have to earn it. And you also can't lose it. And every godly soul is enlivened by something called Chachmah. And it's because of the unique characteristic of Chachma, of being completely open um, to what is beyond it, Chachma is capable of having this genuine sense of Hashem. And so there's a genuine innate sense of Hashem inside every Jew. That that's where our belief and our willingness to um, die with martyrdom, Kiddush Hashem, comes from. And that that Chachma's relationship with Hashem is like the flame and the source, where the flame seeks to return to its source, but unlike most things that return to its source, the flame, when it returns to the source, ceases to exist as its own entity, right? Unlike other elements like the earth or the water, which maintain their existence when they return to the source. And the flame is never comfortable outside of its source, right? The flame is always flickering. So too, this Chachma so strongly identifies with, with, with Hashem that it seeks nothing else than to be subsumed within Hashem to lose its own identity and is never comfortable being an, being an entity in its own right. <coughs> and so we've now answered what the objective of this love is, what the purpose of this love is, is to achieve a, a total um, losing of oneself within Hashem so that you, do not, you, you are no longer a separate entity in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Like the flame returning to its source where it ceases to shine. Now, we then said that, it, and, and it's specifically the presence of Chachma in something that gives it its holiness, and that's what means something is truly alive. We spoke about life. And so the things that are devoid of Chachma are called death. And that's the Sitra Achra, that's the side of unholiness. And also, Jews who are sinners before they encounter martyrdom. And then the question is, well, if every Jew has Chachma, so shouldn't every Jew be an, be an instantiation of holiness? And the idea is, well, unfortunately, the Chachma in every Jew, or in most Jews, is in exile. And that's why it's called the hidden love. Because that love is hidden. What is it hidden inside? So, say that in, um, in the life of a person. Where is this love hidden? The desire, the desire to sin. What? The desire to sin. In the desire to sin. The desire for ungodly things, right? In the spirit of folly that legitimizes an ungodly life. Right? Which means we are actually experiencing the hidden love. But the fact that it is a love to complete, be completely subsumed within Hashem, that has been hidden and it has been corrupted into a passion, into a desire, into identification with ungodly things. And that parallels the idea of the exile of the Shina divine presence. And that is, and so in that sense, the living part of the person has been exiled into the dead part of the person. And so the person is effectively dead, walking zombie, so to speak. Until when? Until the situation of a serious nefesh of martyrdom, at which point something happens and the person comes to life and the chacham breaks free from its exile. Does that sound familiar? Good? Okay. We are on page 82. Um, the left-hand column, the paragraph that starts, however. However, 
This exile of the faculty of Chachma refers only to that aspect of it which is diffused throughout the nefesh and animates it. What does that mean? Only part of the Chachma is in exile. Only part of the Chachma is in exile. Which part is in exile? What does that mean? Okay, so for this, we have to go back to something we learned earlier. Remember we spoke about earlier about how Chachma enlivens the godly soul? And I said actually in Kabbalah, there are three levels of the soul, nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Um, nefesh is a more, relates to the more tangible aspects of our existence. Neshama, ruach relates to the more emotional aspects. Neshama relates to the more intellectual aspects of our existence. And you can kind of think similar to the way the soul enlivens the body, the chachma enlivens the other aspects of the soul. So the nefesh, ruach, and neshama are like a body and the chachma is the soul that enlivens it such that in Kabbalah, Chachma, this level of Chachma is sometimes called Nishmasa l'nishmasa, Nishama l'nishama, the soul of the soul. So that already gave us a distinction between two levels of Chachma. I mean, we, we saw about different levels of Chachma in contrast to earlier in time, but within, the, within these two chapters, 18 and 19, we already encountered in chapter 18 two levels of Chachma. Chachma as it enlivens the rest of the soul versus Chachma what it is unto itself. Right? And again, The analogy of that is we could think about the soul as it's clothed and manifest in the body versus the soul as it is (coughs) in and of itself. So here's a simple question. We're going to step outside of the Tanya for a moment. I mean, this idea is in Tanya, but we're stepping out of what it says here. Let's just ask a simple question. When a person sins, does that have a negative effect on their soul? Forget what it says here. Just think about this for a second. Person sins. Does that have a negative effect on their soul? Yes. Okay. Are we all in agreement that it has a negative effect on the soul? Okay. <coughs> can, then just ne- can those negative effects accumulate? In other words, the person sins once and again. So now you have it's not just the, the second sin and actually is making it worse. Or are they not cumulative? Like you said, and that's it. I mean, some things in life are like that, some things in life are not like that. Um, for instance, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you incur debts, right, they're cumulative, right? I borrow $100, I borrow another $100, I now own $200, right? They're cumulative. There are things that are not cumulative, okay? Um, like if a person is, if a person is uh, liable for the death penalty for committing a crime, right? And they're sentenced to death, and they committed. Like, you can't, you can't execute them more than once. That's it. Are they, are, so, are these things cumulative? Does it get worse the more a person sins? Or like once you sin, like the second sin, the third sin, the fourth sin, they don't really do anything. Gets worse. It gets worse. Okay. Well, if it's cumulative. Could you eventually get to a point where the soul is completely destroyed, completely damaged, that it's like unrepairable, it's like it's broken completely? I mean, think about it. If you take anything and you chip away a little bit, and chip away a little bit more, and chip away a little more, and you do cumulative damage, eventually what will happen? There's nothing left. There's nothing left. So is it possible to destroy your soul through sin? Again, if we accept that sin damages the soul, and we accept that those damages cumulative, doesn't it follow that enough sin destroys the soul? And if you disagree, I would like you to explain to me why that wouldn't be true. Maybe not the soul itself, but how you relate to it or feel it. Okay, so now you're, you said two different things, how you relate to it and how you feel it. Those are not exactly the same thing. But you, both of them, you're backtracking from the idea that the sin damages the soul. Ah, but you could, but the first thing you said was like, you see, maybe not the soul itself, but there's some other aspect of the soul. In other words, if we say that the damage to the soul is relegated to a certain aspect of the soul, but, there, but the soul itself is not really damaged by the sin, 
then we could say there maybe there is an aspect of the soul which is completely um, eroded through sin, if you sin enough, God forbid. But then there is an aspect which is impervious to the damage of sin. And maybe that aspect can allow the, the soul to, be, to rebuild itself, to repair itself. We might call that, I don't know, something like tshuva. Right? So the very idea that you can't sin your way out of Judaism, you can't sin your way out of your connection to God, <coughs> is because Kabbalistic, there's an aspect of the soul which is impervious to the damage of sin. The soul itself is not damaged by sin. But there is an aspect of the soul which is damaged by sin, and minor sins do minor damage, and major sins do major damage, and you know, if enough damage is done, that aspect of the soul can be completely destroyed. But it can be rebuilt. Why can it be rebuilt? Chuva. But what's the basis for chuva? The other aspect that was never damaged. Right. The aspect was never damaged. Okay. And that we differentiate between the soul as it is clothed in the body versus the soul itself. Which part of the soul is damaged when a person sins? Part clothed in the body. In other words, the part that directly participates in the sin. Which part of the soul remains, remains impervious to the damage of the sin? I wouldn't say unaffected, right? Because if you're, you know, it's like if, if you have a child and the child does horrible things, right? And damages their life. They're not damaging your life, but it has having an effect on you care, right? So I won't say unaffected, but it's certainly, which part of the soul remains undamaged by the sin? The, 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 the core being of the soul, which is not really clothed in the body. Okay. So I'm using that example because I think that example is actually a little bit more intuitive than what we're going to talk about. Um, right? That's, that, yeah, if you sin, you're, you're having a negative effect on your soul, and yet in some level your soul is impervious to the damage of sin, right? On some level we say mitzvahs connect us and sins separate us, and on some level we say a Jew is always connected no matter what, right? So we, we are making a division, so to speak, two levels of the soul, you know, conceptually, this would be called the, the essence of the soul or the core of the soul versus the soul's manifestation or how it's clothed in the body. Um, Kabbalah loves using uh, um, symbolic language. So they'll call it sometimes the head of the soul versus the foot of the soul. Okay. Does this make sense? Okay. So now moving back to the Tanya, when we speak about the soul, be, when we speak about Chachma being in exile... Right, the chachma that's in exile is the part of the chachma that is infused within the other aspects of the soul. The, how chachma brings a sense of godliness to the other facets of the soul, right? The 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 life giving quality, the drive, the energy, okay, and that part of chachma is in exile, okay, but. Everybody goes to say, yet the root and core of the faculty of the divine soul remains in the brain and does not clothe itself in the sackcloth, the klipa, in the left part of the heart, in the veritable exile. The core of Chachma is not affected. It's not an exile. Okay. So now, let's go back to the analogy of the flame for a moment. Um, if we were to, you know, apply personhood to the flame. What does the flame desire? To go to its source. To go to its source. Completely lose itself in its source, right? Mm. Okay. Now, when you have a strong desire that you really feel, does that affect the rest of your psyche? Does it affect the way you yeah. think? Does it affect the way you emotionally feel? What? Okay, um, what you get upset about, what you find pleasure in, what you take joy in, what frustrates you. Does it affect how you actually behave? Not just which behaviors you do, but the way you go about them. Yes? Right. So you see how desire kind of radiates out through the rest of the person's being, right? And energizes it, enlivens it, etc., 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 right? So if the Chachma is being analogized to the flame that seeks to unify with the shame, so that aspect of desire, how it enlivens right, and directs and infuses the rest of the, of the soul, that is the thing that is being covered over by the Klippa. That is the thing, right? So, if I were, so the, 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 
the yearning and the passion and the energy being exuded by the Chachma, in other words, the love of the Chachma is being clothed in the Klippa. It's being captured and put into exile by the Klippa. But that love is being generated by this strong identification with Hashem, right? That strong identification with Hashem, the thing that is the origin of love, the source of the love, right? That is, the thing that, that, that is not in exile. Okay. So let's think about it like this. Um, why, why does the soul seek to reunify with God? We've answered this. This is very cool. Why? To be one with its source. Why does the soul to be why does the soul seek to be one with its source? It's nature. Yeah, but we just use that as an as an as a as a, an idea that it's not rationally based. In other words, you can't say the soul is enhanced by that. We didn't really mean it's like a built-in nature. So that wouldn't be the explanation. But if I ask why, why does the soul desire to reunify with God? What resides in the Chachma? Remember that? Passion. No, what resides within the Chachma, what rests in the Chachma? The godly awareness. The godly awareness, right? Because the, God, because the Chachma is, has the capacity to be aware of Hashem as Hashem truly is, that's what leads to the desire. Now, so I want you to understand there's a kind of a causal relationship here. Because Chachma has this awareness of Hashem, as Hashem truly is, because Chachma doesn't have the need to maintain its own sense of things, to maintain its own existence, to maintain its own structure, to maintain, it doesn't have to frame things in its own terms, right? It's not like that, as we spoke about earlier in class. So that openness, that receptivity of Chachma allows Chachma to have a genuine sense of Hashem as, it, as he really is, which is why we say that the infinite light of Hashem rests or resides within Chachma. That's what creates the drive, right? to be subsumed. In other words, the, 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 the sense of Hashem generates such a strong level of identification that there's now a desire to reunify with Hashem. So I, I can make a dividing line and I can say there's the awareness and an identification with Hashem is really the core element of Chachma and the desire is how that then impacts the rest of the soul. So is it correct to say that the, that the hidden love is is the Chachma? It's not really the it's not really the Chachma. It's that the Chachma, the the the, the 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 desire and drive of the Chachma is what we call the hidden love. But the Chachma itself is not the desire. The Chachma itself is not the drive. The Chachma itself is not the yearning. The Chachma itself is the awareness and identification with Hashem that underlies that. And so what goes into exile is the desire, the love, not the awareness or identification. Something else is happening there. What happens to the Chachma itself, the core element of Chachma? It is, as it were, dormant. Sometimes the translators annoy me. Why? Why can't you just translate things literally? It's asleep. Rakshi Bechinas Shaina. Rather, it is asleep. Right? It's asleep. Now, what happens when you're asleep? When you're asleep, it's not the same thing as exile, right? So, yesterday we deconstructed exile, right? And we said that exile means on the one hand, you haven't really assimilated. You're not where you belong, which means you haven't assimilated because you, you have a sense you belong somewhere else. But on the other hand, you really are, but, you, but you're not where you belong because you're, you're being coerced not to be there. You're, you're, you're being compelled not to be there. And you're being compelled to participate and to contribute and to be involved and to be engaged, right? 
And so exile is heightened when you have two things. The stronger sense that this is not my place and I really shouldn't be here. And really being forced to participate and be involved, right? So like I said, how a gulag would be more of an exile than a prison cell, right? A gulag is a prison work camp where you don't get just to sit in your cell all day. They, they, they make you do menial manual labor, which maybe is entirely dangerous all the time. Good? So let's deconstruct a little bit. What is sleep? First off, what's the difference between being asleep and being dead? I didn't ask you that. You can breathe. What? You're alive. I'm asking for a concept. What is the conception of being asleep and being dead? Oh, you're alive and you're asleep. Your heart beats when you sleep. Your heart doesn't. Well, let me me say this again. I want a conceptual difference because nothing, if you say anything physical or biological, it's not going to carry over to Chachma being asleep, right? Consciousness. You have the ability to wake up. One second, one second. The difference between being asleep and being dead is consciousness? Yeah. You have the ability to? The ability to wake up. You have the ability to wake up. Okay? Let's go one step a little bit further. What's the difference between being asleep and being in a coma or having fainted? Willingly Not always. Have you ever Come met then. children? <laughs> if people were willing to go to sleep, parents would be so much calmer. How likely the chance of, or how easily the chance of waking up? Why do people um, faint or enter into comas? Something is neurologically wrong. Very good. Something is wrong. Why do people go to sleep? Something is right. Because <laughs> they're tired. It's, yeah. So in other words, like this. It is, it, is, it is... Going to sleep doesn't indicate that there's anything wrong. Right? Nothing is broken. Nothing is damaged. Right? Unless you go to sleep. Right? That's what it started out, right? So, in other words, going to sleep means... It's different than death because you can wake back up, but it's also different than a bunch of other things because there's nothing really wrong. Right? All that's happening when you're asleep is you are not engaging with reality outside yourself. Right? And that's like a normal thing for your, for your person to do. It's a normal thing for a person to like, sh- like disengage from reality for a period of time and then re-engage again, right? Now, sometimes a person disengages from reality because something is broken, right? Fainting a coma. Sometimes that disengagement is like permanent, death, right? But there's a level of disengagement, nothing is wrong, just, they disengage. Um, and then you can be woken up. How are you woken up? Alarm clock. In other words, the, the diseng- and there's another important distinction that when someone is asleep, right? That disengagement, there's kind of a passive monitoring of do I need to re-engage? Right? If someone is fainted, right? You can't like use an alarm clock to wake them up. You put things in their mouth? Maybe. Depends the kind of fainting. Right? Okay, but there's, there's, so when, when someone is, goes to sleep, there's nothing wrong. They're just disengaged. But despite them being disengaged, right? There is still kind of a passive monitoring of do I need to re-engage? Okay? So, let's go back. The root and core of the fact that the divine soul remains in the brain that does not clothe itself in the sackcloth of the klipa, in the left part of the heart, right? So it's the, the chachma is not hidden, right? The way the love is hidden. But it is, as it were, asleep. Right? Now, I'm a parent. There's a gift that some parents have, which is the ability to sleep through <laughs> things. Now, you have to be careful because you don't want to sleep through the wrong things, right? Like there's certain things that should wake you up because like they're dangerous, right? But um, if you can go to sleep and even if like, you know, baby is, you know, 
is crying. Some babies cry and they get up and they'll cry and they'll go put themselves back to sleep. And if you can sleep through that, that's great, right? But you don't want to be so asleep like if something serious happens, you, you don't wake up. Okay, so Chachma is, what is kind of the, the Chachma, meaning the part that has that openness and thus awareness and thus strong identification with Hashem as He truly is, that part of the soul is what? It is asleep. It is disengaged and only passively monitoring if it really needs to re-engage. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not broken. It's not being affected by anything. It's just asleep. asleep. Apparently, most souls suffer from an extreme drowsiness. Now, what happens to the desire being generated by that chachma? Right? The passion exu- being exuded by that chachma. That is still there. And it's still infusing the soul with a drive and passion energy. And that is, goes into exile. And so the love is hidden. But the chachma itself is not hidden. The chachma itself is just asleep. asleep. What does that actually mean? Like, how does it go to sleep? We will get to that. Now, you will notice, where did it say the the Chachma? It resides. In the brain. brain. Okay, keep that in mind. Right, so the the Chachma itself resides in the brain. But the passion and love generated by the Chachma, the desire of the Chachma, right? That flickering of the flame of the Chachma, that resides where? In the heart, right? And that's, and, you know, that's, that's that gets covered over, that goes to the cover of the Klippa. Okay. In the case of the wicked, not exercising its influence, right? That's the key element of being asleep. You're just not having an influence. Nothing wrong, nothing broken. There's still a minimal level even of awareness, proof being you wake up to sounds and things, right? Dor- dormant in the case of the wicked, as long as their knowledge and understanding are preoccupied with mundane pleasures. Ah, what is it that puts the Chachma to sleep? Mundane pleasures. When your mind is occupied with mundane pleasures. So now we need to stop and understand this. Here's the thing. There is a part of you that is aware of God in this very, very deep and absolute sense, right? I'm going to start with a very, very simple physical analogy. There is something called um, cable news. You heard of cable news? Cable news broadcasts 24 hours a day. There are several cable news channels. It doesn't really matter. Yes? Now, I'm going to make a radical statement that cable news is bad for your health. Um, let us assume for some strange reason you have to be watching television for some strange reason. You don't have to be watching cable news, right? You can watch something else. Why? Because the television, right, could receive signals from some other channel, right? So as much as the cable news is broadcasting or, you know, sending through the satellite or whatever it is, you know, or the actual cables, if it's really cable, right? They're, you know, mind-corrupting nonsense that destroys society. Uh, it's irrelevant if everybody would just tune to a different channel, right? It would have how much influence? Zero, right? Okay. Let's move up a step. Does that idea make sense? Okay. We're going to move slowly up to the word it says about Chachm, okay? Um, there, there's a, there's a, an anecdote that many rabbis use in speeches to, to illustrate many different points. Um, the anecdote goes like this. There's a rabbi in the shul, and um, he hears two of the congregants having a fierce debate about some current events issue, and they're making very profound, coherent arguments this is, an, this is an old anecdote. I don't know if it still be true nowadays. And um, he's quite impressed the level of, of, of sophistication and, and knowledge that uh, these congregates have. And even though they're, you know, even though they're on different sides of the issue, they're able to make very coherent and strong arguments in favor of their positions. Anyway, the rabbi goes home, um, and at his uh, doorstep are the two newspapers. He has a subscription to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. For those of you who don't know, the New York Times tends to be more left-wing, Wall Street is more right-wing. And um, as he's wont to do, he reads the editorial page, and then he discovers that the two congregants, one was just repeating 
um, the editorial from the New York Times, the other one was just repeating the editorial from the Wall Street Journal. So it turns out these people are not well-educated and can think clearly and have good arguments, it's just that they're very good at absorbing and parroting. Right? And then you can use that for all sorts of things, right? Good. Okay, what I'm gonna use that anecdote for is, everything that you are absorb and are capable of parroting, do you absorb, do, do you actually parrot? So let's think about it for a moment. Um, there are, there's a lot of different things ranging from random facts to what sound like coherent arguments, whether they are or not is beside the point, to values which we absorb, right? Our minds absorb somehow, right? And many times they have zero effect on how we live our life. That unless we consciously call them to attention, we could say that those things are basically asleep. All right, so let's give some examples, okay? Um, we'll, start with, we'll start with facts where it's easier to see this. Um, what is the capital of Russia? Moscow. Now, until I asked you, did you, were you thinking about that? Were you aware of it? But you didn't just discover it, right? So you had absorbed that at some point, right? And that fact is basically asleep until it wakes up because something in your consciousness is um is like an arm clock. I, we we need to know we need to know this right, and then the information kind of manifests in your mind right. Okay, now let's move to something else. Um, is a child. Um, is it really important to protect children from danger? What? Yeah, it's a value, right? Take that as a value, right? Just that's a value, right? You know, I think we've all that has become absorbed into us in some way, somehow comes from somewhere. I don't know if it's like from society or built in. Doesn't matter. But that's protecting children from danger is an important thing, right? Okay. How much influence does that like have on your actual psyche and how you live your life? Not until you actually have to protect the child. Right. So, like, for instance, if, let's start with, if you were to see a child in clear, immediate danger, most people, right, that would, that would all of a sudden, from being something which is extremely dormant and having zero influence on their psyche to basically hijacking their whole being, right? It wakes up, right? It was there, but it wakes up, right? Right. Um, in a certain level, right, if one starts to see themselves in a, in, the, in a role such as a parent, right, or, or a guardian or educator of children, right, then even if the child's not in immediate danger, but because of how that person self-conceptualizes, that kind of, there's a kind of, that, that value is kind of not fully asleep. It's awake. It has, it's a surprise. Not the same way, not in the same intensity, right? But now let's imagine, God forbid, a child is in danger. Let's even imagine it's a parent. And the parent has a child. The child is in danger. Um, and the parent is busy on their smartphone. And completely engrossed in their mind in the smartphone. That's like you're watching something wholesome, assuming there is something wholesome, and therefore you're not getting the cable television, but now in the reverse, right? So is the value there? Yeah. Can the value wake up? Sure it could. But you're preventing it from waking up because your mind is muting out anything that would awaken it. Anything, right? By being so engaged with something else, right? Does this make sense? So what are we saying about every Jew? Every Jew has an inherent, okay, awareness and desire an inherent awareness of Hashem and an inherent desire for Hashem, right? The desire that every Jew has inherently, which comes from the awareness, is an exile, right? That yearning for Hashem is an exile. But the awareness is not an exile, it's just asleep, right? right? It's there, but it's having no effect. Why is it having no effect? Because the effect that it has is through the mind, and our minds have tuned into a different channel. And as long as our minds are tuned onto a different channel, what happens? It's muted. 
it's muted. That awareness has zero effect, right? Like being asleep means you have zero effect. Nothing's wrong with the Chachma, nothing's damaged with the Chachma, nothing's broken with the Chachma, nothing hurt the Chachma, but the Chachma is being muted. Because the Chachma's place of, of manifestation, a place of having an effect, the Chachma itself is in the mind, and the mind is tuned into, as he calls, mundane pleasures. Now, if something were to trigger the mind to move away from mundane pleasures, what would happen? The chach might be woken up. Does that always happen every time? Well, we spoke of the idea that we have free will. So when we speak in terms of the mechanics and causality of how the soul works, we always have to remember that there's a notion of free will that you can use to you know, control things, right? As much as, as much as someone tries to persuade you, you can always choose not to be persuaded. As much as someone... Uh, as much as something is compelling, you can decide to shut it out, right? We, we spoke about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nevertheless, when they are confronted with a test in a matter of faith which transcends knowledge, touching the very soul and the fact of Chachm within it, at such a time it is aroused from sleep and exerts its influence by virtue of the divine force that is clothed in it. So there's something interesting. There is a way to wake up the Chachm that kind of bypasses the mind completely. Right? And that's what's happening in martyrdom. So in other words, like this. The Chachma is asleep. What does that mean? The Chachma is not having an effect. Because the way that Chachma generally has an effect is through the mind. But the mind is being preoccupied with other stuff. Something interesting occurs in cases of martyrdom where you can somehow wake up the Chachma completely bypassing the mind. So what I would like to do is I want to talk about two separate things. First, I want to talk more about what exactly is our mind being preoccupied? What does that mean? And so the Chachm being asleep. And actually, um, how that relates to the, um, to the exile. And then, you know, if we have time, then we'll start talking about what happens in martyrdom that kind of bypasses the whole thing. Someone hacks the system. Now everything is capable. There's no avoiding it. Okay. Our minds are always working. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean we're always paying attention to it. That's a separate thing. And it doesn't always mean we're consciously directing it. That's also a separate thing. But our minds are always working. And here's the thing, the mind is always, the mind is always um, working around something that has significance or value. Now, what happens if you want to, for instance, study for a test? If you want to study for a test, right, what you realize is because the information on the test doesn't really have much value to you, It requires a lot of conscious, directed effort to get your mind to work on it, right? On the other hand, um, you know, if you're running a business, right, thinking about, you know, how you could cut, you know, your costs, you know, it's hard to stop doing that, right? Make sense? Right, so the things that we value or attach to, that's what our minds are doing. Okay, so here's the thing. Um... As human beings, what is our mind attached to? Just as general, like what, what are all of our minds attached? We're all individuals, we're all different, but what are all of our minds deeply attached to so that we're always thinking about? Ourselves. Ourselves. Food. Food. What? Right, what is called mundane pleasures. The, the, the positive experiences of, of our existence. Right, which of course varies both based on circumstance and temperament and gender and age and all sorts of interesting things like that, right? But so some people might be obsessing over their business and some might be obsessing over food and some people just might be like taking in the, 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 you know, the breeze, whatever it is. But our, our minds are always figuring out processing in different ways something around what makes our lives better. And what have we seen? The focus on what makes my life better, the focus on me as an entity, 
is to the exclusion of Chachma, right? So is there any space for the Chachma to manifest in such a person's mind? What if they're a religious Jew? Now is there space for the Chachma to manifest in their mind? What if they're really super observant? Now is there space for the Chachma to manifest in their mind? What if they really don't want to go to Ghanim and they really want to go to Ghanayden and they really want to feel proud of themselves, they lived life fully and properly. Now is there space for Chachma? What if they really don't want God to be angry with them? Now is there space for Chachma? What? Yes. So when he says, the wicked and the sinners... Right? And we spoke about this before, right? About how, how you have to be careful when learning Tanya that Tanya is speaking at a much, on a much deeper level, right? What is evil and bad in the perspective of Tanya is, is starting from a divine perspective, not starting from like a generic moral or ethical perspective, right? So you could be a religious Jew. You could even be arguably a devout religious Jew. But as long as your mind is not preoccupied with God as the center of things, as the focus of things, right? God can even feature in your mind, right? But if God is like a major supporting actor in your life story, there's still no room for Chachma. God has to be, as it says in the Encyclopedia Judaica, you know there's something called the Encyclopedia Judaica? It's exactly what it sounds like, Encyclopedia of Everything Related to Jews and Judaism. Full of heresy. Um, and also some other interesting things. Um, but there's an entry called God, reasonably so. And so under God, the first thing it says in God, there's a bunch of different things because God shows up a lot in Jews in different ways and forms. And so the first, the first thing about God is that God is the hero of the Bible. Think about it. If you read the Chumash, who is the main character? Hashem. I mean, his trusty sidekick, Moshe, doesn't even show up until the second book. Right? It's the story of God's relationship with first the world and then the patriarchs and then the Jewish people through the intermediary of Moshe, right? That's the story, right? So if God is the main character, right? Maybe now there's some room for the Chachma, right? If God is the central focus. So... What does that mean? That for the overwhelming majority of Jews, even Jews that are religiously observant, even Jews that are actually quite pious, as long as God is not the priority of their minds, we have to say that their Chachma is Asleep. asleep. And if their Chachma is asleep, and this is going to be key, if their Chachma is asleep, that is the condition that enables exile. As we're going to see later on, when the Chachma is awake, the exile of the, of, the, of the love, of the desire of the Chachma can't happen. We'll get into that as we move further in the chapter. In other words, why, why are we not having this constant yearning to subsume ourselves within Hashem, to lose our very identity. Why, why don't we feel that way? Because of that desire, that love is a hidden love. It's hidden in the exile of our animalistic desires, right? But what makes that possible is that our awareness of Hashem is asleep, or as the translation is, it is dormant. And what makes that the case is that our minds are preoccupied with our own well-being, and God has to fight for space and, you know, Maybe gets the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Right? What would we call a person who isn't like that? Tzadik. Yeah. Right? Maybe, by the way, even a Bainani. Right? Because one of the things, going back, we spoke about the idea of a Bainani, is a Bainani is a person who could never sin. Not just they stop themselves from sinning. No, that, that sinning is unthinkable to them because there's such a level of clarity, right? So there's some element of that chachma present, right? So it's, 
so what you basically have is, is that the fact that our minds are, are being used, they're being preoccupied with mundane pleasures, what does that do? That renders the Chachma asleep or dormant. It doesn't have the place to, to, you know, to let itself be heard. And it doesn't do anything to object to that. It's like, okay, fine. Yeah. And that allows the, the klipa in the heart, that allows the animal soul to take the desire being generated by that chachma and usurp it, put it into exile. And that's the state of affairs of the overwhelming majority of Jews until a point of martyrdom. Well, you're not going to be the main character if you don't want to You're not going to what? Be the main character if you don't put any effort to be it. So you're just like, oh, okay, fine, like, I'll go to sleep. Did you put did you put any effort in being the main character in your own mind? Or did that just kind of the status quo? Mm. Status quo. Okay, so like, I don't think your premise is correct. <laughs> By the way, there is a place in because I think I mentioned this in a different class, that that how can you have an opposite did I talk about this? How you can have the how you can have an opposite of Chachma? There's the idea that everything in, in Kabbalah, everything everything holy has its it has its counterpart in the side of unholiness. Mm-hmm. But the question is like how could you have the opposite of Chachma? Like what would be the inverse of Chachma? And, and that's that. Is the the, the chachma? It, it has this this absolute acceptance of Hashem as, and the truth of Hashem just as is, right? But when you have that kind of attitude towards anything which doesn't really deserve it, i.e., say I don't know, our own individual selves as distinct entities with our own personal significance, that would be like the the evil twin of the chachma. So yeah. Yeah. So don't worry, don't worry. We're all the same boat. Okay. The previous Rava um, one time said that the sinner of Tanya is the person who sees um, living, a, living a, a, a good life through what the Torah permits as positive. That is the sinner of the Tanya. You know, like, I mean, there's lots of things that are permitted, right? Kosher food, you know, um, you know kosher cruises, I don't know, I don't know. There's a lot of things that are permitted, right? Keeping Shabbos and having, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So it's like, I want I mean, living, living within the confines of halacha and, and, and making it the most positive experience, the enjoyable experience possible, right? You know, the right blend of, 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 of uh, you know, upper middle class lifestyle with some spiritual meaning attached. <laughs> the center of the Tanya. Not because they're necessarily doing anything wrong, but if you think about that mindset is just, it's like the top of the, uh, what do you call it? It's the top of uh, the roller coaster right before it goes down, right? Like, like that mindset very easily slips into doing things because I like them, doing things because I enjoy them, right? And God is always has to like justify his place in your life. And like, you know, it's just, it's just a progression between there and just being, you know, like an absolute real sinner who just sins and doesn't care, right? It's, it's a progression. Now, if, and that's because of how our minds are working. If we could somehow tune our mind into Chachma, right, then sin would be out of the question, right? And possibly we could even release the desire um, that's generated with Chachma from its exile, and we would be enraptured with this, with the, with this, with this insatiable desire to subsume ourselves within God, and you know, and then we'd be like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai or something. But uh... good, okay. So now, what happens during martyrdom, or right before martyrdom, that makes the person willing to die for the sanctification of God? When they are confronted with a test in a matter of faith that transcends knowledge touching the very soul and the fact of the Yochachim within it, at such time is aroused from sleep and exerts its influence by virtue of the divine force clothed that is clothed in it as written, and Hashem awoke like one who had been asleep. In other words, like this. What happens when you encounter something which clearly and directly pertains to the truth of God. An example of that would be, say, idolatry, right? Idolatry being the, a denial of God, right? So when a Jew is faced with the question of worship an idol or 
be put to death or be tortured or whatever the case might be, what happens at that point? The Chachma wakes up. Now here's the thing. Is it because the person made a choice to move their mind onto the God as the center of everything channel? Yeah. So how does that work? So let's go back to like protecting children is a really important thing. Okay. And you're really distracted because the child, you're on your smartphone doing who knows what. Okay. But there's like a certain kind of scream that children make that completely like short circuits how your mind normal operating. And then what happens? Right. So there's like, like again, when you're asleep, there's like this kind of level of monitoring that's taking place. Like an alarm clock will wake you up. So the Chachma kind of has this like monitoring thing going on. It's like, you know, as long as we're not talking about God, we're okay. So no. So, you know, it's like, Indulging in permitted pleasures, okay, fine, you know. A little bit of dishonesty in business, okay, fine. You know, maybe some Lush and Hara, it's okay, fine. You know, maybe a, a cutting quarters on Shabbos, okay, fine. Some non-kosher food, mm, okay, fine. Baptism, okay, that's too much. Right, like that. that that's kind of how the Chachmah is. It's the same kind of thing, right? It's the mind, it, it, it. The mind is being, the mind is not tuned into the Chachma. There's no space for the Chachma to operate. And so the Chachma goes dormant, but there's still this kind of this monitoring, right? Like when something really is a value, even though you could be distracted from that value, right? To the point that like, I mean, this is unfortunately true, but every year, you know, there's unfortunately some children pass away because they were left in a car. Is that because their parents did not value taking care of them? It's because their parents' minds were preoccupied with other stuff, right? But they're, but, you know, how do we know that someone is an evil person? That when there's that, when a child cries in that kind of way, like they're in real danger, right? It doesn't trigger anything. That's an evil person. You see what I'm saying? Like, like it, so, so the, the, that's what we're saying, is that the, the Chachma is dormant, the Chachma is asleep, right? It can be woken up, right? For the Chachma to be awake all the time, the Chachma needs, a, it needs the space. And the mind, unfortunately, is, is being occupied. It doesn't have to be, but it is. But the, there's nothing wrong with the Chachma, there's nothing damaged the Chachma, there's nothing that's overpowering the Chachma, right? And so, if the Chachma, which has this deep identification with God, Senses this is this is something that directly pertains to the sanctity of God. Well then, the chachma wakes up, and when the chachma wakes up, right? What does that mean? That the that the awareness of Hashem is going to do what? Take over. Take over, and that does some very interesting things to a person's psyche. Very interesting things. One thing it does, which is what we're going to see, um, it removes any ability for the klipa to cover over the godly desire. It removes any ability for the klipa to actually have any effect. Hmm. And so what's going to happen at that point? Words, why am I not? Why am I not overcome with this deep desire to, to lose myself in God right now? Because that desire is an exile in my desire for lasagna or whatever, right? No. Right. And, but if the chachma, if, if, if the awareness of Hashem of the chachma were to be awake within me, the klipa, the, 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 the desire for lasagna, whatever it is, doesn't have that kind of power anymore. And if it doesn't have that kind of power anymore, then what happens with that desire? it's going to drive the person towards Hashem. And that's what's happening in martyrdom. Right? So there's actually a complex process here, right? There's something which clearly, explicitly, as it says here, um, it's a matter of faith. 
And because it directly pertains and explicitly pertains to God, right, the Chachma wakes up, right? And because right, the, the, and it's, the sense of God becomes 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 uh, becomes overwhelmingly powerful, and the effect of that is going to be is it releases the desire from its exile because it removes the thing of exile, and then that's where the drive to give up one's life rather than be disconnected from God will end up coming from. Okay, I want to stop and talk a little. Why make it so complicated? I said this in the beginning, but now that we've now that we've got into the complexities, right? It's become like a, you have to like chart the whole thing out. Like, why why make it so complicated? Why not just say deep down we all love Hashem, and that gets triggered when we love Hashem? Why why go through all this complexity? I'm not the one adding the complexity here. The Tanya is why why do that? Okay, for what purpose? So you can know you have it in you? No. No. To know how you can bring it about more. What, so we're going to like hire, hire a Gentile <laughs> to stand there with some baptismal water and a gun <laughs> at all times? <laughs> like really, like that's like... <laughs> like <laughs> no, like... Well, well, if you try not to distract your mind as often, then you're leaving space for... Right. Now, if you understand how it works and why it doesn't work, right, then you can utilize it in other ways, right? We spoke about this before. Like, once you understand how something really works, you can modify its function, right? So if we could somehow create a mindset which doesn't allow the Chachmah to be so asleep or doesn't be so dormant. And we're going to talk, and that's, what, that, that's what's going to be, you know, and then channel that in direction to, and, make, and, channel, and channel that directly towards our mitzvah observance in some way, right? Then what would end up happening is that it becomes, it becomes a matter of maintaining a kind of integrity and self-awareness and consciousness. Right? And that's going to be chapters 20 through 25. It's going to build off of that. But if all you say is deep down you have this intense, you're burning for Shem that gets triggered with mysterious numbers, like, okay, it's fine. But like, I'm not, nobody's like telling me the cross or the sword. So like, I believe you, but like, so what? It doesn't, how's that supposed to transform my, my, my lived experience of practice in Judaism? Okay. Um, Yes. What about Jews who did become idolatrous? So we spoke about this when we spoke about Messias Snefesh. Um, so I'll refer you to go l- listen to the classes we did at the end of chapter 18 rather than repeating it. Okay. Okay. So now, here, here's, here's the thing. What is really waking up and this is this. I want to point out the point this out. Let's look in the look in the bottom of the paragraph that we just read. Bottom of the comma we just reading. It's aroused from its sleep and exerts its influence by virtue of the divine force that is clothed in it, as is written. And Hashem awoke like one who had been asleep. He's making a subtle distinction between the godly light, the godly awareness within the chachma as opposed to the Chachma. Did you see that he's making that distinction? What is really going to have the, the, what is really going to have the power and the influence is not the chachma itself, but the godliness of the chachma. Okay, so let's explain what would that, what, what does that mean? What would the difference would be? Let's say, um, you read a really good book, like a really amazing book. Okay. And that book has really transformed the way, the way you think, 
And because of that, you make different life decisions and you do amazing things and voila. And then you get interviewed later in life, right? And um, someone asks you, like, how did this whole thing get started, right? And you say, well, I read this book when I was a teenager and it was really transformative, right? Would we say that the book woke up and the book exerted its energy <laughs> and force and impacted the world? Or we say, you woke up and you exerted force and energy impacted the world. Which one? You woke up. Right. The book is the thing that is... That triggered it. Right. So the thing, in other words, the things that you're aware of are not waking up. You're waking up, right? And you're the one that's exerting this, this, this um, influence, right? Because of what you're aware of. But now the Alterba doesn't say that, right? The Alterba says the Chachma has within it this awareness of Hashem and it's the Hashem in it that wakes, that wakes up and Hashem is exerting. And he quotes a verse, right? And then what does the verse say? Who's waking up? Hashem. Hashem. Hashem is within your Chachma, so okay. So it, it, go back now to the example that I said before about like having the value of protecting children. Is the value of protecting children waking up or, or, or is your awareness of it and your valuing of it waking up? Like the, the, the moral virtue of protecting children is not doing anything, right? It's just like, it's inert. You see what I'm saying? But the way he describes it, it's not like Hashem is just inert and you're... No, it's like Hashem was asleep in... So... Again, that's an interesting quote. Like, what's going on there? Okay, so here's the thing. Does the body become more aware of the soul? And as thus it has more energy, it has more power? Or does the soul have to actually engage and infuse life in the body? Which one? In other words, should we think of our soul as like inert thing and we help the body become more aware of the soul, more in tune with the soul? Or is there actual process of the soul being more engaged with the body? Which one? The soul the body. So I would say both. Let's give an example. When you practice, you right, anything from walking to playing an instrument to... Um, mental habits, right? You are trying to attune your biological existence to something so it's more receptive, it's more in tune with it, right? But then there is an idea of, of your soul being more engaged. And here, I'll give you an example of your soul is more engaged. Um, let us say you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling particularly enthusiastic about life. Like another day, you know, get up, go to work, do the things, right? And then you get some really good news about something. How do you feel at that point? You feel more alive, more engaged, right? What has happened? Something has awoken the soul to say, hey, you know, this physical existence, it's worth getting involved in. And so the soul has become more Engaged. So now just think about those two things. Think about practicing versus being enthusiastic and inspired. Getting enthusiastic and inspired is getting the soul to be more awake and engaged. Practicing is doing what? Getting the body to be more in tune and receptive to the soul. So if you are well practiced at something, it doesn't take a lot for you to, to do it, right? You just decide and then you're kind of in sync. Um, but if you're not practicing something, it takes a lot of drive and enthusiasm, motivation to get you to do it because you know, the, the, the soul has to push against a lot more inertia. Okay? Because the soul, unlike a moral value or a book, is a living being. Make sense? Okay. I was going to now go into the next thing that I was going to invite. I went over time, so I'll do this very quickly and then we'll, we will pick it up again tomorrow because it, it, it will tie nicely with how we're going to start tomorrow's class. Tomorrow we're going to be doing um, a
quasi-questions and answers. We'll start with a topic, and then and if we finish that, we'll move into questions and answers. Do tzaddikim ever die? And the thing I want you to think about is, one can make a really reasonable argument that Shakespeare never died, that Aristotle never died. Why? And that legacy continues to influence us, right? But as we just pointed out, is the legacy really doing anything? Or is it inert? And we are the ones who are becoming aware of it, and then we are the ones who are doing something, right? So it's only in a very euphemistic sense you can say they still live. And now the point that we're going to talk about tomorrow is Siddiquim are not like Aristotle and Shakespeare. Siddiquim are still... They're still alive. Oh, God. Right? Much like what the Altarbis says here is that the, 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 within the, 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 the divinity in the Chachma is a living energy, right? like the soul and the body. So we're gonna, right. It doesn't say that we, we are awake, we are awoken in our awareness of Hashem. It says the, Hash, the, the sense of Hashem within us wakes up because it's living, right? After all, that's how Chochman lives through the sense of Hashem in it. And we'll talk about tomorrow about this idea that that idea is extended to tzaddikim. I mean, as we did say today, that tzaddikim mm-hmm. are defined by having a very awake Chochman, right? Tomorrow we're going to talk about Lag Bomer. And then after we finish that, we'll have regular questions and answers. Thank you. Thank you.